Robin started the interview that we did yesterday, and this is my impression of Robin starting. Like, the start of the episode, it's like, okay, all right. So, all right, hey, all right. So, we're here with, I uh, wonder <laughs> 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 Another episode of me being excited to talk to people and another episode of Bowden rolling his eyes at me. It's going to be great. I'm very excited. So for today, we will be talking with Anne. She is a recent grad woo, <laughs> um, from UIUC and she is heading off to the other side of the country where it's super sunny and super happy. I mean, not right now, obviously, but you know, none of us are happy right now. It's cool. <laughs> We're hoping for the best in 2021. But in the meantime, so excited. So we have an actual professor on the program. This is a big honor. Not not used to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, stick around. We'll be back in just a moment. everyone. Anne was actually the first person I met at UIUC who was super, super nice to me. She was just a little angel, little Basque angel uh-huh. in this class. And I observed her while she was giving a presentation. And she Wait, was did I present great. that day? Yeah, you were presenting something about Basque, obviously, um, but I think it's probably like Basque in France for the, for her class. Yeah. For oh, yeah. 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 I remember that. <laughs> And then, and I remember I came up to you and asked you about like what your opinions were on Ocho Apellidos Vascos and everything like that. I also will say that she is probably the most stylish person I have ever met at UIUC. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a real honor. And I, and we've been trying to get you on this program. I've been talking about it for a year. I was like, I'm going to get Ani on the program, but you know. 2020 happened and like life things happened and graduate school so this is an extra special super exciting episode so Anne so if you can introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your research that'd be awesome yeah so my name's Anne I'm originally from the Basque country and yeah I just finished my PhD program here at UFI my research mostly focuses on second language phonology I'm really interested in how people perceive and produce second language vowels Mm-hmm. I think vowels are like the most interesting thing for somebody who learns English because it's like there's so many different sounds and that's not common like languages don't have that many vowel sounds I didn't even know that when I started my undergrad because I was an English major I did a minor in literature which is really funny but I was really interested in linguistics but and then I I think that that kind of reflects my experience as a learner of English a little bit how I got to that point in which I can perceive and well produce produce I can still perceive differences in sounds and there are some sounds that I cannot differentiate by any means so I wanted to look into that but I also wanted to look at the other side like people learning Spanish because you know Spanish vowels I like what's what's to them phonetically they're different and like how all of that affects but I, I looked I wanted to look at it into like you know the classroom how people can learn explicitly and that's probably my favorite part of my dissertation how different kinds different methods that we can use to teach pronunciation to students which ones work better and my hypothesis was that one would work better high phonetic variability training you know getting a lot of input from different people instead of just one person Mm -hmm. and my hypothesis was right 
So it helped in production, not so much in production, but I was really happy with that. Um, Definitely that's the kind of research I want to move forward into in the future, like classroom acquisition. I think it's like, because a lot of times people don't have the chance to like study abroad or travel abroad or live abroad. I think I'm really lucky in that aspect, but it's not the case for the majority of my friends. So a lot of what people have is classrooms. They have Duolingo. I mean, I'm with Duolingo right now and you know, I mean, I'm doing my best, but yeah so that's kind of my research um i'm always interested in basque as well and one of my colleagues wrote a dictionary of the basque of his town and i like to do that for mine even though my town is not as basque speaking as his well that's mm-hmm. it, but yeah and i would like to do that just kind of give back to my community a little bit and like for preserve. Sure. that's super great and then so when you know from like learning about the vowels and now you're learning how they're learned super meta we love sla meta it's great Mm -hmm. and like you said especially in spanish you know because in terms relative to other foreign languages offered in in american universities like the vowel system is quote unquote simple Uh it's it's not honestly You, you talked a little bit about student perception and then their production and like did you find like a disconnect did you find kind of I would love to hear more about the hypothesis that you found to be yeah. like correct because we love so, that when that happens. <laughs> so the thing is, I was studying um, HPVT, hyphenated variability training, and that has mostly been done in English, like okay. English nouns. And and the thing was, I wanted to see if because I compared two sections of the same class, one receiving the like the regular phonetics like training in which mm-hmm. you your model is your teacher and you have some recordings but that's about it and then i did the same exact materials except i added recordings from speakers of different dialects okay and then i added some perception training the thing is so i wanted to see i i expected that they would improve both in perception and production because most of the studies have been done in hpbt are either perception mm-hmm. or production there are very few that like look at both and I said, okay, I mean, they're positive in both, so they have good results. Let's, that would be my hypothesis. What I found is that one semester, and also I looked at a specific vowel. I looked at how the difference between pena and pena, like mm-hmm. the monophthong and the diphthong mm-hmm. in American English, because British English speakers don't have that problem. Okay. But American English speakers do. We have so many problems. <laughs> and so, and I wanted to see if people were able to differentiate them and then produce them. So they were able to, like after, so I did a pretest at the beginning of the semester and a post-test after, and there was a significant difference in the post-test for the HPVT group, and they okay. improved dramatically. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other groups, they were like kind of the same. They didn't, there wasn't that much of a difference. So perception-wise, yes, HPVT works. And the mm-hmm. thing is, it was one semester of Spanish phonetics with a bunch of sounds, not just that one. If, I mean. It's all the Spanish vowels, all the Spanish consonants. You have accentuation, syllabification, all of that. But even with that, they were able to improve that in perception. In production, no. In production, actually, the control group, because I had a control group of people who are in similar levels of Spanish, but not taking phonetics. Mm-hmm. They, were do- they did a little better. So, I mean, I think thinking about why this result happened, why perception, yes, but production, no. Mm-hmm. Maybe a semester is not enough. Maybe production needs more, like working on it, um, more practice, more exposure to different people speaking the language. Um, so I would say that, yeah, I mean, and it, it goes with like all these theories of speech perception saying that speech perception needs to occur first before production can occur. You need to be able to perceive it accurately 
before you are able to produce it as so. And I don't want to use accurately because that word is kind of like, it's kind of iffy. I will say when you said that, like, oh, I was like, oh, yeah, no, no, no. (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, oh, like, sorry. The thing is, like, even myself, as I was like preparing my dissertation, I wanted to look at it at an accuracy point Mm -hmm. of view. And it's been kind of like a process to like think like, you know, it's not about accuracy. It's not, it's about being understood and understanding. Mm -hmm. So let's just say that what I mean by perceiving accurately is that they're able to perceive the difference and like establish different meaning. And that needs to happen before they can do that in production. Mm -hmm. So I think it goes hand in hand with that, that perception maybe can be developed first but production needs more time. It cannot happen simultaneously. Oh. Maybe needs to, there needs to be an extra step for it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of how I interpreted it. Right. So the learning curve of production took longer than yeah, the perception definitely. did. Got it. Interesting. That's mm-hmm. so, that makes me feel better about my own skills in French, not going to lie. It makes um, me feel better on my own skills in English. And, yeah. so, and then I think my next question always goes, because this, this is an issue we have in, in my department based on enrollment and stuff, but maybe not true for the program you just finished, because we have like a very small handful of native French speakers and the rest of us are L2 speakers of French Mm -hmm. and so what we produce as instructors in the classroom is what our students will model and so was the quote-unquote nativeness of the instructor something that you looked at? So I wish I could have looked at it but no because it was you know I used intact classrooms with the TA and actually the section that I used for the HPVT group was my section but the mm-hmm. other section had an American, like a native English speaker. Mm-hmm. Whose pronunciation, because I was looking at vowels and her pronunciation of vowels was not, let's say, not, I'm not going to say problematic, but it was very close to what I wanted for, to be, for, for them to be a comparable sample. Okay. I wonder about it, but at the same time, I cannot do anything about it because mm-hmm. I could look at it again with an instructor that's a native speaker just to make it comparable. But right now, with coronavirus <laughs> also the fact that i'm graduated and it's just mm, yeah i wish i i wish i was able to honestly right. I mean, I, my plan and when i spoke to my advisors like i want to have not somebody else who's a native speaker so that i can be compared to them in terms of like the input they receive from the teacher mm-hmm. i think that was like one of the biggest things also to like for the validity of the results in my in my opinion and the thing is i don't have any power over course assignment so it was like well this will have to do right it's so funny that so many times in academia we have this desire right to to do all these things but at some point it's like we have to accept and be okay with what we can do and you know and and that's fine but you know I I hate having to make those decisions sometimes but you're right sometimes we just have to accept it so we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll hear a little bit about Ana's experience in grad school we'll talk about some teaching some service some job market a little bit of everything so be right back so much about Anne's experiences as a researcher during her PhD career. Um, now we can shift a little bit to your experiences as a student, um, as an instructor, and also now as a professor to be. Um, and specifically, I wanted to hear more about what you did outside of the classroom. 
one of the things that I think it's most important for me that has been, it's just getting to do other things. Mm -hmm. Because when they do hear the quad day and they have all these clubs and everything, I've signed up for some clubs, I've met with different people, just to get, because I'm always in my office working and I don't work at home. So I spend a lot of time in my FOB. Mm-hmm. And so something that I did was I, I became an advisor for a sorority. Actually, I joined as an alumni. So I'm a member of a sorority, but I was never a collegiate member. And I've been the academic advisor for the past three years. What I do mostly is I am the one that, so because there are different chairs of different things. So the um, academic excellence chair who's in charge of, you know, GPA and programs for studying for the members, uh, she's in direct contact with me. And we meet up every once in a while and we discuss some things and programs or for example, like, I don't know, buying a check account, um, organizing a banquet for those who've gotten a high GPA, kind of rewards programs for those who are doing well. So that has been really, really enriching, I think. Another thing that I've done, I've been involved with student government and shared governance on the university level. And that has, I mean, I still am. And that has been really, really interesting Mm -hmm. in a sense that, because as an international student, I don't get to vote. I don't get to, but I'm affected by, by how people vote. Right. Like I don't have a voice, but I'm affected anyway. Mm-hmm. So I joined student government because I would be able to vote. And it's like, they're making decisions that aren't important. And I get to have a vote. Mm-hmm. So I've been in student government for three years or two and a half. I think that that has been really interesting. And also to see like the, it's opened my eyes to like things that are happening in this university that I as a white woman who, you know, has no student loans. Mm-hmm. my country would not do that mm-hmm. uh so who has no problems who has a salary albeit a kind of low but still can live like live their life there's so many things i have no idea what's going on in this, in this campus and it's opened my eyes to it and that has been really really interesting there was a lot of a lot of stakes involved high stakes stuff and trying to advocate for people while you're also advocating for yourself finishing a phd Dealing with a lot of, th- and the job market too. And the job market, yeah. It was a lot of things. It was stressful. But I think it's taught me a lot as, it's taught me a lot as what I want to be as a person. Like, you know, advocating for others, speaking up. Because a lot of times I think that as an international student whose English is not their first language, I feel sometimes that what I'm saying is just not. And I've shared this with uh, the other two student members because they're really good friends of mine. They're both undergrads from this country. Mm-hmm. And I told them that a lot of times I don't, I don't want to say anything because I know I'm not going to sound as eloquent or as, and I think my English is really good, but it's just not there for those things. And then there's also the fact that all these professors were mostly white dudes, pretty old. Yeah. Um, and they're professors, they're full professors. Oof. And they're like, why should we listen? Because also the student representatives were all girls. Mm, oh. Yes. Huh. Why should we listen to these three girls um, when we have stuff to do? And it's like, you're forgetting that. I think we should have more representation of students there just because we're the, if you start counting like actual numbers, there are more students than faculty. That's one. Right. Um, and, but there's, I think it's been a really good experience in a sense that I've made myself heard. And when somebody was trying to like discredit me, not 
directly, but by saying, okay, cool, but it's like, no, no, not okay, cool, but what I'm saying is important. Yeah. And so I'm sure a lot of people are interested to hear about your experiences on the job market. It's that looming thing at the end of this tunnel that we're, we're all dreading, but we're also really excited for, but we're also like, why do we have to go through this? So yeah, let's, let's, if you want, if you want. So one thing I think it's important to note is that you're going to receive pressure from a lot of people whose job market experience was very different mm-hmm. and whose actual job was very different from what you're going to get. So, because a lot of times it's like people who are giving you advice about the job market ended up in an R1 and I did not want to do that. I was like, no R1 for like, I'm sorry. Like research is cool, but I prefer teaching and I want to like, so I started with my documents in October, which a bunch of professors was like, Oh, so late. It's not late. I can attest to that. <laughs> Um, what I did a lot was go, the graduate college has some sort of workshops mm-hmm. in which they give you some advice about each day. It's like a different kind of document. Kind of, for example, I'm applying for X job at R1 University. Well, you should do. Or I'm applying for Y job in liberal arts college. Or I'm applying for Z job in a teaching institution. Mm-hmm. So it, what I did was I went to all of those. I also read The Professor is In, which is this book that's really, really depressing. Yep, it's on, it's um, there on I mind. do not recommend the first chapters about how the job market is so bad and you're not going to get a job, blah, blah, blah. Even, I mean, and I'm not telling you this as a person who got a tenure track job. I'm telling you this as when I was reading it before the job market started. And I was like, you know, it can be as dreadful as it can be, but it's not the end of the world. There are jobs outside of academia. And mm-hmm. if I don't get a job in academia, it's, that's going to be the, it's not going to be the worst part. What's, I mean, I'm not going to die. What's the worst part? You don't get a job. You get a job elsewhere. I think that a lot of times we don't, we're not taught how a PhD makes us so marketable for other things. We have skills that a lot of people who have not done a PhD don't. The thing is we need to market them. It's something we're never taught. Mm-hmm. With that said, I read that book. It was really useful, though. The last chapters or the medium, the middle chapters about examples of documents or how you should write it, what you should not write. That was really useful. So I would focus on those. Then after that, I started writing uh, documents in my office. It took me like days. But I started with the research statement, which I think was also I had models from people in my department, like who graduated a million years ago. Mm-hmm. So that was really useful. So I kind of like going from those and the documents I got in the graduate college and the professors and I kind of did like a kind of like a Frankenstein of what I wanted to write. And I also wanted to write like this paragraph, I'm going to write about my dissertation, this Mm -hmm. one, the other things outside of my research that I like in terms of like, you know, like Basque, for example. Mm -hmm. And so kind of like doing outlines really helped out. Then um, I think the most important part is the cover, cover letter. For that, I did spend more time. But I ended up like, once you write your first one, it's kind of like a Frankenstein for the different jobs. It's like, oh, this is a more research-based job. We change the order, we add this. This job wants something with translation. Let's make sure that translation has its own paragraph. Mm-hmm. So that helped a lot. Teaching, like I said, uh, like I told you, teaching statement was the worst for me because it's like, it makes you think about something that's like you do so naturally. And it's like, what do I do? So you have to ask a lot of questions to yourself. 
Mm-hmm. The grad college here at UFI does have consultations. So I did go there a lot and they were really helpful. They were They're really so helpful. great. I'm so grateful to be here with the grad college at UIUC. And some it, people who were in the job market the year previous told me, oh no, they're not that helpful. I disagree. They're, they're really they're fantastic. I really love them here. And I've gone um, to a lot of their workshops. After that, I was just sending everything and you wait. Mm-hmm. And you could be waiting and waiting. A lot of times they're not going to tell you that you are not selected for the Skype interviews. That's going to be fine. Honestly, uh, I think a lot of times people need to remember that the grad college, that you can, because there was, for example, there was this job that I thought was perfect for me. And then I got interviews in jobs that I didn't even imagine they would like call me back. Right. I didn't even imagine that a job I got that I ended up choosing would want me. Right. But I think you need to remind yourself that you did, you do, you're doing your best with those documents, but it's not up to you. It's up to them. Um, so you need to wait. And while you're waiting, you focus on other things, writing your dissertation, teaching. I think also your mindset going into the job market is really, really important. Because for me, it was like, if I don't get a job, it's fine. I also thought if I don't get a job, I go to Spain. So either I get a job when, or I go to Spain. When too, when, when. Mm-hmm. I know it's not the case for everybody, but I think it's very, very important to remind yourself that not getting a job the first year or not getting a job whatsoever, it's not the end of the world because there are jobs out there. And like I said, we have skills that can be marketed to any other kind of job. So I went with that attitude, like, you know, if I get a job, that'll be great. If I don't, I don't. Even my advice is like, are you going to go to the job market? You didn't, didn't you want to move back to Spain? And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to give it a try. You know, I want to see if I'm worth a job. Right. If somebody wants me. So, so um, and if you're only, if you're comfortable sharing these numbers, yes. but I was curious to see like how many jobs you recall that you applied to and then how many you got interviews for and then how many you got campus visits for. So I have a, an Excel. Let me check. Of course, because we all have. For this. I mean, I, it wasn't until grad school that I actually used Excel. I've never, I never used it in my entire life. And then I got to grad school and I was like, oh, I need this. This is awful. So I applied for a job at Amazon and they told me no immediately because, well, no green card. I applied for 22 jobs. Wow. So out of 22, I got eight Skype interviews. That's really good. Then campus visits, I had four and then I got a job without a campus visit because it was a lecture job mm-hmm. and out of the campus visits I got three offers wow yes that's an amazing success rate um, especially in the Spanish in the Spanish field of the job market because it's very competitive wow so and I'm and I'm so happy you get to go to California you get to you know after COVID right of course but you know it was, I went there right before COVID, COVID became a, like a big thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Your insight, super helpful, super interesting. And so for folks who, who don't really know um, what job you did land with, could you just desc- like describe like your position, your department, your school? So I got a job at the California State University in Northridge mm-hmm. in the Valley. So I'm really excited to get that Valley Girl accent. <laughs> ah, and it's the Department of Modern and Classical Languages and Literatures. Mm-hmm. So it's a department with multiple languages, mm-hmm. um, which I'm really excited about because it's not just Spanish or and Portuguese or Spanish or Italian or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I will be teaching linguistics and translation courses, which I'm really pumped about because I did that translation certificate here. Right. And 
And my campus, for example, and I'm really excited about this, it's a Hispanic-serving uh, campus. Mm -hmm. And it's a Hispanic-serving university, and a lot of the students are non-traditional. Uh, and what I mean by that is older students, people who work and mm -hmm. who go to, I mean, on the classes that I'm teaching are made late at night. Well, now, I mean, with the time difference, I'm going to be teaching one class at 9 p.m., for example. Okay. Which is not uh -huh. a problem because I'm a night person anyway, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, I'm really excited about that. Um, and even for when the job, when I was doing the campus visits, I think like the, the vibe that the students give you is important too. And I, I got the best vibe from them because mm -hmm. they were really interested. And I was teaching a morphology lesson. I, I mean, I love linguistics, but morphology is my least favorite. Mm -hmm. Morphophonology is different. Yes. Like morphology by itself. <laughs> oh God, I'm just, I'm just bad at it. I struggle with it a lot. So Ani has been so gracious and given us so much insight on her experience researching, dissertating, job marketing, if that's a word, and so much else. And so now that brings us to our last segment, which we call Lessons Learned. So Ani, now the question is, if you could go back and tell yourself at the beginning of your journey into academia, one piece of advice, what would it be? Mm, something that I like to tell myself is not to take myself very seriously and not to not to punish myself for not doing not being doing work in a sense that i had like this feeling that i should be working all the time but it's important to take time off yourself for yourself like go out have a drink watch a show even get plastered and like have a have a terrible like headache the day after the day after that's not gonna that's not gonna make you fail out of grad school so also make sure that the only people that can have an opinion on you are yourself and your loved ones, uh, but mostly yourself. And what that means is that if somebody judges you by, I think that a lot of times I struggle with like feeling judged by, you know, having a life outside of grad school, because that's something that I think it's very cultural for us. People who come from Spain and the Basque country, like we are very social people. If somebody judges you because how are you living your grad school experience, just let them have it. It's probably going to be jealousy. Um, and you're, I mean, if your professors are happy with your work, you can do whatever you want. That's the most important part. You're not worse than anybody because you may not be working all the time and you're not better than anybody either. Yeah. And that's probably the most important thing at the end of the day, for sure. But yeah. I think it's, I think it's something that we, like, we, we hear that a lot, you know, like sports system, fun stuff outside, hobbies, and also this thing of like, you know, not taking yourself too seriously. And I think it seems like previous times we've talked about um, this thing of, you know, like when you see a, like your first year PhD student and your, you know, advisors are like, oh, you need to be engaged, you're interested in this topic, so you need to be engaged with this journal. Look at what's being published, right? Mm -hmm. Find, you know, the direction and the, re and the research. And you read these pieces and you're like, oh my God, how, like, I can't write like this. Like, I can't do this. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, but it's like, what you have to keep in mind is like, what you're seeing is this end product that sometimes is the result of like, you know, so many reviews like three years. Of, yeah. yeah. Like, right. So. And I think that's such a good note to end of this episode. A very hopeful note, very like inspirational like you can do this note so mm -hmm. Anne, thank you so much for joining thank us you today. guys i feel so honored it's like <laughs> so sadly i don't listen to a lot of podcasts i need to start to listen to those but this is the first time that i've been interviewed to a podcast so i feel really vip you know <laughs>
Um, but yeah, Ani, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your wisdom. And we wish you nothing but the best. Thank you, Look out. You got, you got a queen coming. Queen, queen. <laughs> All I get queen. in the valley. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to sing like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Bradlings. Um, we look forward to chatting with you all more next time. Thank you.